This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. It was Nobel Prize winning economist Astor Lindbeck who famously observed that, quote, in many cases, rent control appears to be the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city, except for bombing, unquote. Indeed, rent control effects seem to be among the few topics on which nearly all who study agree. That consensus includes MIT professor Chris Palmer, a recent Hamonk guest, who examined the policy's 25-year negative effect on Cambridge before rent control was banned in a statewide referendum in 1994. Nevertheless, Michelle Wu, during both her campaign and now as mayor, has made rent control, or the more pleasant-sounding rent stabilization, the centerpiece of her promise to address Boston's high cost of rentals. To that end, Mayor Wu has commissioned a new 25-member Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee, which commissions a broad group of stakeholders to, quote, roll up their sleeves, unquote, and examine how best to implement the policy. While voters should be pleased the committee members' names and organizations are provided on the city's website, they might be concerned the list contains only one landlord. Indeed, some advisors, such as the one from the Boston Teachers Union, seems to have no connection to housing or the rental community at all. Why would the mayor choose advisors for a policy that has been both unsuccessful and unpopular in the past and overlook the expertise of those who provide the rental units in the city and who presumably know best how to better serve renters in the future? And if not organized to cultivate a healthy rental community, what is the more likely purpose and goal of the Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee? My guest today is Doug Kwajoki, Executive Director of MassLandlords.net, the largest nonprofit for owners and managers of Massachusetts residential real estate. Mass Landlords is a platform that offers training, information, and support to landlords across the Commonwealth in areas of real estate law, regulation, and standards. Doug will share with us his own research and observations of rent control in Boston and Cambridge in the past, and tell us why he is concerned that the new Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee may be comprised of those who may actually work against the interests of landlords and thereby harm the Boston renters the mayor has stated she intends to help. When I return, I'll be joined by MassLandlords.net Executive Director, Doug Quadrofi. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the director of Mass Landlords Net, Doug Quadrochi. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Doug. Thanks very much, Joe. Good to be here. Uh, it's great to have you back. Um, I want to talk about uh, some housing policy proposals uh, recently um, proposed by our elected mayor, Mayor Wu. Uh, but before we get to uh, the nitty gritty of uh, the mayor's policy proposals, I'd like our listeners to know a little bit more about what uh, MassLandlords.net is all about. What do you do? Sure, yeah. We're a 501c6 nonprofit trade association. We exist to help owners create better rental housing. That's really our purpose. And that's a, a purpose that both landlords and renters can get behind. Um, and we're primarily about education. Um, so as a C6, we can do policy advocacy, which is part of why we're here now. But really, our day-to-day -day is really about training landlords about security deposit law, not discriminating even accidentally, um, maintaining lead safe um, and otherwise safe housing. And that's uh, a big part of why we launched the Certified Massachusetts Landlord, which is a nation first, a state specific professional designation for landlords to um, promise to follow best practices, take a test and um, commit to continuing education. 
Um, so we're really all about creating better rental housing. So um, you're kind of trying to professionalize the business of being a landlord, um, but many of our listeners are either own a home or are renters themselves. Why should, um, let's say, a renter or uh, people who own who are not in the rental business, why should they care about whether uh, landlords are successful? Well, we need a lot of rental housing, and rental housing is not uh, it's not something um, that uh, applies to a small group of people. If you think about the arc of your life, typically when you start out young, you don't own a home yet, you rent somewhere, and then typically as, as we age, we tend to go into a rented home. So it's really important that there's a lot of rental housing available, even if we don't think about it right now. Um, we may need it later, and lots of our family and friends need rental housing too. So it's really important that we have this type of housing in the marketplace. So uh, more uh, landlords means uh, more abundant uh, rental units uh, for everyone. So let's uh, also offer our listeners a little bit of, a, uh, as a backdrop to our discussion, a little bit of basic economics. Um, we all can agree on all sides of all issues here in, in, with regard to rents, that in Boston, rents are very, very high. Uh, you know, it's, it's no secret to anyone. Why, in your view, are uh, is rental units or the cost of housing so high in Boston? Yeah, it's a real problem. Rents are unaffordably high for lots of us. And even if we want to buy a home to be a homeowner, those prices are up too, unaffordably high for lots of people. Um, so um, it's a it's a real longstanding problem. Really, about 100 years since we've enacted zoning, we were able to create all the housing we needed in Massachusetts and more broadly in the U.S. when we had it wasn't a free-for-all, but we had more liberal use of land and the ability to add units, the ability to rent by the room. And all of that has stopped for some very questionable motivations over the years. Uh, we tried to patch it in the 70s with a law called Chapter 40B, which says if you don't have enough, uh, quote-unquote, affordable housing in your town or city, then a developer can come in and put in a lot in a single development. But the historical way we've had housing has always been small additions, small growth, small subdivisions across a very large market. And that really hasn't been allowed to happen in the last 100 years. So Massachusetts has had a lot more people come here. We've had a lot more um, jobs and everything's, it's a really a pretty good place to live. You consider all the places you could be in the world. Lots of people want to live here, but we have not substantially increased our housing stocks since we first enacted zoning. Neighborhoods still look by and large the same as they did 100 years ago. And that doesn't work for the number of people who want to live and work here. So um, so what you're saying is, uh, of course, we're a great place to live, but the, the zoning laws have constrained supply and you've got a, a demand that exceeds the supply. So, you know, basically economists say the prices go up. Um, yep. So um, we know that markets are more or less a um, communication mechanism. They communicate uh, uh, preferences and they say to uh, producers, uh, if something's expensive, uh, why don't you uh, then produce a lot of it and uh, collect uh, the profits of, of that? So why wouldn't all this high rent generate massive uh, development projects that would ease this pressure and, and balance uh, supply with demand? Well, you would think it would, right? Um, but uh, the fact is rental housing in particular is illegal in most of Massachusetts. You can't add any new housing without permission from a local zoning board. And typically that permission is very difficult to get. Now, Boston is a good example of a place that has a lot of rental housing and a lot of development activity, but that's because Boston's zoning board has certain procedures that large developers can use and understand to follow um, to get their projects built. But you look out across most of the state or even inside greater Boston, uh, there's very little opportunity to build even a single new unit. 
the Metropolitan Area Planning Council has an amazing tool called the Zoning Atlas, where they look at the effect of not just whether it's single, double, three-unit zoning, but floor area ratios, lot sizes, setbacks, uh, minimum um, parking requirements, and so on. And they determine whether you can effectively have two units at all, or it's effectively single family. And huge parts of the state, especially what we think of as very dense Boston and greater Boston, do not allow the creation of a single new housing unit. So it makes it difficult to become effectively a landlord. Uh, so um, uh, where we make it difficult for landlords, uh, we make we constrain supply and make it difficult for tenants. So I'm going to make a, a leap here. What you're asserting is what's good for landlords, what, what cultivates good landlordship is also what's good for tenants. Yeah, in general, you want people to be able to operate rental housing so that there's lots of rental housing to choose from so prices stabilize. So let's move to the topic of our, our discussion today, uh, which is Mayor Wu's uh, campaign promise to take on the problem of high rents. Um, and her idea of a solution is a full-throated support for rent control. I think her preferred term is rent stabilization. I haven't uh, really understood a substantial difference between the two terms, but let's let's use rent control um, for now. Uh, to that end, she created a uh, a new newly announced, I think this was March 11th, the Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee. Um, uh, now, you are the leader. I think you're the largest landlord organization in the state. I am I right with that? Yeah, certainly in terms of area we cover. We've got 2,500 dues-paying members in good standing. Yeah, so I would say that. Now, there's about 25 members on that committee. W were you invited to be a member of this committee representing uh, uh, the, that number of landlords? No, uh, I would have been delighted just to even provide a recommendation because we've got you know, 2,500 members, only 5% of them are in the city of Boston, but still that's 120 landlords that would have made fantastic additions to this committee. If the mayor's office had said, hey, could you recommend any one person, let alone a couple, we would have been very happy to do that. But no, and I know the mayor's office knows about us. Um, we have a lot of shared interests in certain things. They, they hear from us regularly. I reached out to the mayor um, uh, when she was running and said, please don't advocate for rent control. But, you know, we've never heard back from them. So. So, but again, theoretically, uh, everybody's um, uh, goals are aligned. You, we've established that what's good for landlords is good for tenants. Uh, so, presumably, the mayor does want uh, what's best for all of us. What are, do you know that? What are the stated goals of this newly formed committee? Well, so the word stabilization is chosen to particularly try to distance this new whatever it's going to be policy proposal from past forms of rent control, where maybe. In the past, with like the World War II generation price controls or absolute price lock, you couldn't do anything with price. Maybe now there'll be something like vacancy decontrol or who knows. So they're trying to find softer, more politically acceptable language. But the stated goal is really to come up with a recommendation um, for rent control, not to have a debate about whether rent control is even worth pursuing. It's a kind of emperor's new clothes scenario where the mayor's handpicked a bunch of people who already agree with her, and they're going to come up with something that they think is going to be politically acceptable. Um, the intent is to have a policy proposed that the legislature would approve so that Boston could have its own form of rent control, even if the rest of the state doesn't have it. Well, let me quote, I say it's a, a politically palatable uh, framing. In the mayor's own words uh, on her site, she quotes, cities across the country use rent stabilization as one tool among many to protect tenants and keep families in their homes. 
The majority of Boston residents are and families are renters. If we aren't willing to take on the rent increases that are driving families out of Boston, then we aren't meeting the needs of our neighborhoods. I think the broad group of stakeholders, including advocates, tenants, and developers who are willing to roll up their sleeves to reimagine what's possible. Boy, that sounds really good. So let, let's uh, let's talk about well, these. I, I hate, first of all, to start with the metaphor, we need to we need to bring every tool we can. I mean, you might use gasoline to power your car, but you would never take a, a can of gas to a fire, right? And there's certain tools that are not right for the job. And in Massachusetts in particular, we have, exper we have experiments with and experienced rent control for uh, 20 years in the 70s, 80s that got repealed in 94. And um, we can look at what happened in the rent control time versus immediately after. And we can decide, is this the kind of tool that we want to use here? And um, the answer is unequivocally no. Like rent control has this set of serious side effects with it. So the fact that other communities still have it, it isn't really a great selling point because we had it in Massachusetts already. We tried it and it did not work. Indeed, we had a, uh, uh, a podcast uh, with uh, Professor Palmer from MIT to examine those 25 years of rent control, what it did to Cambridge in particular. Uh, and uh, to paraphrase his research, it wasn't good. Uh, it persisted for 25 years, and it was bad enough that in 1994, as you say, we had a statewide referendum to make it uh, illegal to uh, to um, uh, impose rent control. Um, uh, so... What I liked about your research, and I did, uh, you, you've done a great deal of research on this yourself, your approach was not an academic analysis of, of rent control and its effects, but you did a more of a, a story-oriented personal account of, of rent control, where you examined the life of a landlord and what um, uh, rent control did to this couple. I was intrigued by the one story, the, I think it was the Bolognas, who... Um, at a beautiful home in Cambridge that they uh, use for rental housing. Uh, share with our listeners a little bit about that story. Yeah, so, I mean, that, it's really important to go back and, and recognize the terrible injustice that these rent control boards committed, perpetrated, whatever word you want, on lots of housing providers in Massachusetts. And the Bolognas are a great example of that. A new, um, new couple new to being a landlord um, and um, just starting out in life, bought a, a place that was a dump and they worked really hard to hand renovate it themselves, do it all right, restore it to its original uh, antique glory and um, make it functional and safe and do all the things that you would hope a landlord would do. And um, they rented to they rented these renters um, that we tried to contact for the story and we did get in touch with them, but um, they didn't say much except uh, the landlords broke the rent control law. And that's ultimately what the rent control board uh, found is that these landlords who made a good faith mistake in raising the rents did break this rent control law, but the penalty was draconian. So rather than say, well, if you broke the law, don't do it again. We've explained to you how rent control works and now you know better, which is getting to the point of mass landlords educating people, right? We want people to be landlords. We want to help them to do the right thing. Instead, what the rent control board did is they, they tripled the damages and they had uh, the uh, landlords pay the attorney's fees, even through the appeal. So ultimately, they had what in 1994, uh, 1990 terms was about $64,000 worth of legal debts they owed to the renters. And that's not the amount of rent overcharge that they may have done um, with uh, not following the rent control law exactly. They, they overcharged these renters very little by comparison. And to make matters worse, the renters actually sublet their unit. They didn't want to live there themselves. So the renters were charging uncontrolled rents themselves, 
like the modern day equivalent of Airbnb. Um, and uh, they were pocketing all that. And the landlord had to pay this huge judgment to the renters who had all the sublet money as well. The landlords ultimately had to declare bankruptcy and they can't be landlords anymore. They do something else now. They're still around in Massachusetts, but they're done being landlords and housing providers. It's a great example of what you don't want. Uh, you've got this really draconian system that drives people out of the business. It rewards bad actors, renters who are subletting and, and themselves breaking the rent control law for some ideological purpose. So I, I think this story has a lot of elements. I, I just to pick out a few. Uh, we're, we're, we're contrasting the, the landlords who are a hardworking, um, certainly not wealthy couple who, as you say, took a, a home and made it uh, rentable. Uh, I, I saw a picture of it. It was beautiful. Uh, and the uh, so we've got the landlord and the tenant actually happened to be a, a Yale graduate going to Harvard um, graduate school temporarily. So the person who was um, uh, not uh, who did who who effectively sued to have the rent control honored uh, was uh, someone substantially more educated, um, mm -hmm. and then ultimately the the takeaway is this landlord is no longer a landlord, and presumably that property uh, is you know headed for a different use. I, I would imagine uh, one might condoize it or or make it into a single family home. It, you know, you essentially discouraged in, in this rent controlled world, uh, someone from being a landlord. So the person who replaced them is unlikely to want to be a landlord either. Uh, so we've we've compromised the supply of 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 properties. Do I have the, the narrative about right? Yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, and without you know naming names and getting into the details of who said what in the case, I mean that is the general arc and that is the result. The renter still remembers to this day they feel that they were in the right. Um, but of course, they're one of those, you know, the legally trained folks, a very highly educated rent control renter, as was typical during the rent controlled years, because, you know, those folks tend to get apartments faster than anyone else because of all the disparate impact we could talk about. Um, but um, yeah, they were, they abused the system, basically. Uh, so the renters had this huge win for themselves. And the result is we're all worse off because that place is not rental housing. Those landlords are not housing providers anymore. There's less rental housing. Yeah, let me, you, you mentioned it. I wasn't going to go there, but I do want to explore this uh, because some of your research does talk about it. And we talked about that with uh, Professor Palmer from MIT that ironically, uh, particularly in Cambridge, the people who are enjoying the um, rent control were not uh, people who are, let's say, um, less well off or uh, uh, what you might expect to benefit. In fact, there are uh, very often uh, Harvard uh, professors. Um, and your research indicates that uh, where we have rent control, we actually see a much smaller percentage of people of color or uh, maybe marginalized communities enjoying the benefits of rent control. Th their numbers are half what they are in the general population. So these yeah. rent controls are generally exploited by those people who are most educated and most able to take advantage of a relatively complex Byzantine system. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's been uh, detected empirically with data and it's been predicted theoretically with math that the tougher you make it to be a housing provider, the longer landlords wait for the quote unquote perfect applicant to come along. And we've got such a problem in America and Massachusetts, no less with systemic racism, that the perfect applicant tends to be someone with um, a very high educational attainment and high income and perfect credit and never been convicted for uh, anything. Um, and so even even silly stuff now you wouldn't think of as being important, um, like possession of weed. There's still, you know, that's still on people's records from the past, potentially. 
And you don't want landlords to be considering that. But during the rent control years, when you could only charge so much for a unit, landlords considered absolutely everything they could. And so you had a really disproportionate number of wealthy people. You had that Harvard professor, you had a, a judge, you had the mayor of Cambridge. Those folks are the ones who got the rent-controlled units. And the ordinary people that were trying to provide rental housing to couldn't. And so that's a really unfortunate impact. And that's a strong reason why mass landlords would go to, go to bat for renters opposed to a rent stabilization proposal from the mayor, because it's going to have this huge disparate impact on a whole lot of folks who don't need that. So as an advocate of tenants, um, you see uh, rent control as being uh, against their interests um, and, uh, you know, uh, using the wrong tool, as it were, to to solve a problem of high rent. Yeah. And it's really counterintuitive. I could just linger on that a moment. Everybody knows it's obviously true that if rent control is passed and you're in an apartment today, your rents can't go up so much so that you are safe today. But what's really not intuitive is the effect 10, 20 years down the road for all the other people who tried to move into Boston during that time under rent control or Massachusetts who haven't been able to get in. So even though everybody today might be better protected by rent control, everybody forever after is hurt by the decreased supply, by the decreased availability. And so that's the, the message we're trying to get to folks. So let's go to the um, let, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the mayor and say this committee was formed uh, to figure out how to uh, stabilize rent in Boston. Um, I think there's 25 members. I didn't see uh, any they had both their names and their uh, profession. I only saw one name on there uh, that had landlord as a profession. Um, what can you say? Uh, you've examined this list of 25 people. What, what are common threads there? If, if not landlords, who is it that's advising the mayor? Well, it's, a, like I said, a kind of emperor's new clothes scenario where the mayors pick people who are already on board with rent control, and um, there's not going to be a very robust discussion. Um, it's basically, if you look at the Office of Campaign and Political Finance, the required reports, these are a bunch of donors, so people who are active in Boston and Massachusetts. Maybe they haven't given to the mayor specifically, but they're very influential in the community, and either they have personally donated or their organizations have donated. For instance, you know, there's not to pick on anyone in particular, but the Boston Teachers Union, they do fantastic work. But I mean, think about how outraged people would be if there were a landlord on some kind of education reform committee. I really can't understand why the Boston Teachers Union is there on this rent stabilization advisory committee, except for the fact that over the years, they've donated over a million dollars to Boston and Massachusetts campaigns. So it's really about how important you are to the mayor and to city politics. And it's not about what you bring to the table with your housing expertise per se. So uh, we've got, you know, again, my my uh, examination of the list looks like a uh, a long list of progressive activists, and there's uh, there's some landlords, uh, as uh, there's some developers, I should say, but uh, really only one landlord. Um, why, if if essentially you're saying it's a uh, emperor's new clothes, if everybody's on the committee to sit there and effectively agree because they were chosen for their preference for rent control, what's the purpose of forming a committee of of uh, uh, of acolytes who? Well, it's I mean, all the stuff we've been talking about, the terrible impact of rent control, reducing supply, reducing quality, disparate impact, that's not a secret to anybody. And uh, Massachusetts does not want to go back to rent control. So what the mayor has to do in order to achieve what is in her city a very popular um, proposal among a small group of renter advocates, what the mayor has to do is make it look like lots of people want rent control because she had this advisory committee with all these people from different backgrounds and they all said we need to have it. 
but it's a kind of astroturfing endeavor. It's not, there's not widespread support for rent control in Massachusetts. And that's why the city of Boston has to go to these lengths to try to advance this campaign promise. So it gives the, the policy, the um, imprimatur of, of broad support and, uh, and makes essentially a historically unpopular policy appeal appear to be popular suddenly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, also on the site, beyond uh, describing the mission of, of this committee, uh, it also mentions uh, when the committee is apt to meet. Do you think uh, listeners um, who hear this program, who feel strongly or have lived through rent control and understand uh, its devastating effects on cities, uh, is there any way for them to share their point of view uh, within this committee? Is, is this committee receptive to input from outside the committee? I mean, I'd like to know and I'd like to be able to advise people because folks are asking us. So Mass Landlords is about to file a public records request to understand, first of all, how the committee was formed, but then also whether it's going to be operating. For instance, we're going to ask the mayor to voluntarily put the Rent Stabilization Advisory Committee under the open um, meeting law. And that's not a requirement. There's some case law that says it doesn't have to be. But boy, wouldn't that be great if there was a, a notice of hearing and then a public comment period. That's what we'd like to see if we're actually going to have a robust discussion on rent stabilization and affordability. Indeed, we'd like to see the thought process. I'd like to participate and I'd be curious. Uh, maybe I've missed something. Maybe there is something uh, you and I don't know that they do uh, that might uh, persuade me that it's a, a very strong policy that'd be salutary for uh, Boston's future. Um, I also I, I want to tie in a, a, another I don't want to. Uh, I'd probably like to do another episode down the road on this policy, but uh, the other major housing initiative that the mayor has proposed is a 2% uh, transfer tax on property over uh, $2 million. Now, uh, I think what jumps to mind to many people in that case is this is a tax on rich people selling their home. Uh, and, but I'd say there aren't many uh, homes in Boston, even in the nicest neighborhoods that are trading above $2 million. And yet, this, this tax is expected to collect $100 million a year, presumably for uh, low-income development. Um, I did notice on that organization a fair number of developers uh, uh, on the committee. Uh, do you, can you connect the dots between a tax that would generate $100 million and uh, a committee full of developers? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean... The reason developers want to be on that committee is because this 2% tax is going to generate a lot of funds. Typically, the city or other communities will match development money with other money to improve the area. And a lot of folks want access to that. One of the developers that doesn't get enough attention is actually what looks like a nonprofit, the Massachusetts Association of Community Development Corporations. They are the strongest advocate for this transfer tax and uh, right of first refusal and other proposals that are designed to generate money and transfer um, transfer assets from primarily rental housing operators to uh, the public space. And so if you think about what buildings are more than $2 million, it's not homes, like you said, it's rental housing. And uh, that creates this tremendous disincentive to be a housing provider. You're going to split that building up into condos that all sell for less than $2 million to avoid that tax. So again, here we have an example of the mayor saying, on the one hand, I want to do something to increase rental housing and address affordability. But on the other hand, the policies are going to destroy rental housing. So I want to unpack that and say, OK, uh, you'll accept my uh, assertion that few single family homes trade above two million dollars and that if it's collecting one hundred million dollars, it's sweeping up a quite a few people in that in that in that tax and that transfer tax. What you're saying is those people that will be paying the tax are largely largely owners of large 
rental buildings. And so as to avoid that tax, it's more likely that they'll convert it to condos, each of which will trade below $2 million, that ultimately if you sell a $10 million property uh, at, at once, you'll uh, suffer the tax. If you divide it into five $2 million units, you'll pay no tax. Uh, if you sell it as condos, thereby re further reducing the supply of rental units, thereby driving up rental prices for those who remain renters. Do I have that about right? Yes, yeah, about right. Another rule of thumb to remember is to tax what you don't want. So if you don't want large rental housing buildings, tax those with a 2% tax, you'll get less of them. I, I get it. So um, I, I found I always find your work uh, uh, interesting and compelling. As I say, it's it's interesting for even those who are not renters or landlords. Uh, it's good for people who want a, a vibrant community. As the mayor herself said, most people who live in Boston are renters uh, and want to see Boston thrive into the future. Um, you provide both a historical uh, understanding of why rent control is bad and actually some uh, very interesting future proposals. In, in a nutshell, you, you, you describe um, what policies might make Boston renters uh, happier, might drive rents down or, or keep them from rising at the rate they are. Um, as a last question, what would you recommend the mayor do instead of these, these policies? Well, I mean, there are two to, uh, there's a short-term and long-term answer. Um, so the short-term answer is to join with mass landlords in our litigation against the Department of Housing and Community Development. We're trying to get access to rental assistance records. Rental assistance is short-term what keeps people housed. And we have this data that shows more than half of the applications for rental assistance the last two years during the pandemic did not get approved. So why is that? And what can we do to make sure people get rental assistance? That's a short-term fix instead of rent control. But then long-term, the long-term fix is to change zoning. And Boston could be leading both within the community and surrounding communities by making the city a multifamily as of right community, where you're not going to be stopped by floor error ratio, setback, parking minimum, anything. You're going to have at least two units on every lot. Um, that's not big development. That's what we call gentle density. And that would double housing in Massachusetts. That would tremendously stabilize prices long term. So really, those two options are things that landlords and renters could both get behind. That's a wonderful way to end the show. I, let's hope the mayor gets a chance to listen. Uh, I believe she studied economics when she was at uh, Harvard College, uh, so mm -hmm. this should resonate with her. I think she understands the terms we're using uh, and hopefully maybe uh, changes course uh, before it's too late. Um, where can our listeners uh, learn more about MassLandlords.net? I've just given the, the website, but... Uh, That's it. Other <laughs> That's it. Yeah, no, it's as, it's as easy as remembering our name, MassLandlords.net. We're very searchable. We've got almost 2,000 free educational articles up. So if anybody wants to learn what landlords have to do with a security deposit or uh, to avoid discrimination or lead paint, we're a great resource. And if you are a landlord, um, we'll teach you. Wonderful. Well, that's a great way to end the show. Uh, Doug, thanks for being back on Hubwonk again. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks. Thanks so much, Joe. Really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.